just shot of the line. The Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast with Stuart McFarlane and Dale Clancy. That's extraordinary. Welcome to the Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast. I'm Stuart McFarlane. And I'm Dale Clancy. And this week we catch up with former Scotland Sevens rugby captain Colin Gregor. Tackling Scottish Rugby. Well, Dale, I can see you've got your sleeves rolled up. You're ready for another bit of chat this week. Good to have you on board once again. How have you been the last few days? Good. A bit sore. I played a bit of touch rugby on Friday night up at my old club Peebles with the OAPs, which is the over 35s, which I, I don't qualify yet. But it was good to see some familiar faces and have a well-organised runaround. But my knees were killing me on Friday night and Saturday, so I'm just recovering now. I'm guessing you've not been playing any touch rugby, have you? No, no I must admit, but when you mentioned that, I was thinking back years ago to and certainly this was the case in football you were allowed two or three overage players in the under 21 side so you'd maybe have a, a goalkeeper or a centre half or a, maybe a midfielder or that playing as an overage player so your experience is the opposite of that you're actually actively seeking to play with older players now yeah my, I remember I played a game against last Wade over 35s um, just after I turned 30 and the criteria for that because it was quite loose was the fact that if you were 35 or if you had the body of somebody who was over 35, you qualified. So I ticked that box. So I was able to I was able to get a run out. But there was guys like 65 year old or like 50 year old and 55 year old that played longer than me. I was absolutely knackered. Like I've not done anything like that in a long time. And I think my body still, and well, my mind still thinks I can do it. But there's a bit of a software issue because they, certainly the body can't keep up anymore. Yes, if, if my body's a temple, I'd say the scaffolding's up at the moment and it's under some sort of reconstruction. I think the experts are going to have to take care in future years for me. Listen, all credit to you. It's good that within the restrictions that are in place at the moment, that you're still able to actively get involved in something like that. And I think that's what so many people are, are crying out for, a return to that and a lot more when it's safe to do so. It was well organised. Peoples have got the sports train app. You checked in when you got there, checked out, they sanitised, you made sure that you followed the protocol and it was uh, it was well organised, so it was good. No alcohol involved as well, which is a bit unfamiliar for the over 35 group. Well, you've got a clear head. I'd like to say I have as well. And Dale, this week, we'll start at Murrayfield, another instalment of Monday Night Rugby, Edinburgh up against another high-quality team from Ireland. And at spells in the game, Edinburgh certainly showed a side to them with this particular group of players they have at the moment. It's, it's perhaps been lacking against Leinster, certainly. They found their, their way back to 1914, having conceded points early in the game, 19-0 it was after 25 minutes. But a, a really disappointing final quarter led to Ulster ultimately winning the game quite comfortably in the end. So that's... Two wins and two defeats in the last four for Richard Cockrell and those two defeats heavy against good Irish teams, very good Irish teams. It's almost like Groundhog Day, we're talking about the professional teams and at least one of them have been defeated and you were talking off air about the game, you've obviously seen it close hand and you notice what impact these sort of games will have on these players and we've talked week on week about the integration and the immersion in the professional environment and in this sort of game where the luck doesn't go your way will be really good for these players so it's again unfortunate that Edinburgh did suffer defeat but it maybe is a matter of your luck not going the way that it should do and then things go against you and you're out of the game Yeah I think the nature of the game they were slow to sort of get into the rhythm and Ulster were very fluent early on in the match so much so that they had opened up this 19-0 advantage with three tries scored just after the first quarter and you do think how is this going to pan out for Edinburgh over the 80 minutes 
But they were able to dig in, dig deep. Jack Blaine scored a try either side of half-time. And the real turning point, I think, was a Chamberlain 40-metre penalty coming back off the left-hand post. And Jamie Farndale running in, really showing his pace, has to be said, to gather the loose bobbling ball and cross the line for what he thought was a legitimate score. He was obviously focused very much on the kick, perhaps unaware he was two or three yards offside when he took off chasing the kick, which obviously came back off the post and then was a playable ball and led to a potential try-scoring opportunity. So I think that was the turning point. It's taken that disappointment and that setback and not going back into your shell and then facing the onslaught of a really talented set of forwards because Ulster internationally have got quality players in their squad at the moment that they haven't been pillaged in the same way as other Irish teams have for international talent at this stage in the season. They're developing again. I think they're going through another transitional period and trying to really um, get a squad together. You see the likes of John Cooney playing scrum half. You know He's been touted as a Lions nine over the last season or two so he obviously got on the end of a good score but you know when your luck's in your luck's in and obviously for Edinburgh on this occasion a mistake which is actually caught by the officials means that they don't get the score and then the game is then put out of reach but again Ulster are a good team they're certainly one of the European giants so it's a good learning curve for the Edinburgh team The Dan McFarland effect at Ulster is clear for all to see has been for a while but continues to be the case The flip side then is a really good win for Glasgow on the road Danny Wilson's had a very difficult start to his tenure as coach of Glasgow Warriors made no easier of course by the fact that we've got this rather lengthy international autumn Nations Cup tournament which is about to end but Glasgow players will maybe feel a little bit more upbeat and positive on the back of a win and great to see players like Lee Jones returning after a long long absence to a man of the match performance I've seen on his uh, social media he's obviously saying thanks to all the people that have gotten back on the field and he's a, a great great rugby player he's been one of those players that's very humble he's hard working he's not the stature of a rugby player that you would see in the modern game in terms of a winger he's quite short in stature but he's, he's really really strong and he's dedicated to his sport I used to play against him when he was at Selkirk and it was kind of the youth ages and then when he was playing scrum half he was just head and shoulders above everybody he just had that little bit about him and he's obviously worked hard so it's great to see him back on the field again like looking at the Edinburgh game when your luck's in your luck's in and Glasgow getting that interception try from Hugh Jones means that they can get a, a very hard fought win a close win again and I think I'm looking more forward to when these players do come back from international duty because when they do come back it makes this competition now a little bit more appealing to fans because not to be detrimental of the, the level that it's at but when these big names and the big players are away playing international duty you're watching a second string team so I'm really looking forward to seeing what Danny Wilson can do with a fully fledged Glasgow side because I feel that's when you'll get the judgement and the crack of the whip and they'll be able to kind of judge him on the results he gets from there We'll probably talk in future weeks about the Pro 14 and, and where it's going to go from here because a, a lot of the sides, a lot of the top again Irish sides have perhaps a primary focus on Europe and a secondary focus on, on the Pro 14 competition and their very very top players are very often rested during Pro 14 matches which again is, is entirely understandable and is good for the individual but from a competition point of view, it perhaps does need something to get the crowds back and get the excitement and the wow factor back into sort of that level of league competition. So we'll move on from there to a little bit of speculation the story has appeared online on a few different sources. Munster's Ben Healy, 21-year-old standoff has been the bedrock of a very good start to the season made by Munster, but touted as a possible Glasgow player. 
Do you think there's any mileage in this? Reading the articles and seeing that he's Scottish qualified, you know, this comes back to our conversations that we've had for a while about residency and players coming from elsewhere. But he's obviously already Scottish qualified. Gregor Townsend's actually been quoted as saying that he thinks there's a lot of promise in that player. So we'd have to see where this does develop. But there is a lot of depth at 10 in terms of Adam Hastings. You would imagine Pete Horn being a little bit older. They would be maybe looking to try and utilise him as a squad player and have that competition at 10. But again, it's another exciting addition to what we are trying to probably create as Scotland with having a lot of depth in various positions because that's just talking about Glasgow. We've never even spoke about nationally. Finn Russell, Chamberlain as well, playing well for Edinburgh at the moment. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see what comes of that. There is probably a bit of mileage in it because things like this don't happen just because somebody's made it up. Somebody's either heard a quote or somebody's had a contact or they're maybe trying to drive for more money from Munster. They said that financially it's a big offering from Glasgow. It'll be interesting to see if that's maybe just trying to drum up a little bit more money from Munster to get them to stay there. Yeah, and an interesting timing as well when you think Adam Hastings obviously under contract, but there'll be contract negotiations going on. Would imagine into the early part of the new year to what extent those negotiations will be I don't know because of the whole Covid situation and Brandon Thompson as well of course at, at Glasgow and of the two you'd think well Edinburgh are starting with Chamberlain a real baptism of fire five or six games that he has played while Van de Waalt has been part of the Scotland squad and is another standoff through residency that will be selected sooner rather than later when we will see him in the, the 23 ahead of the Ireland game at the weekend. So maybe Edinburgh will look with slightly envious eyes at Glasgow being in a position to at least put an offer in. Who knows? We shall see. Time will tell. Moving back to Murrayfield and news that there is hope that 25,000 could attend Six Nations games. Obviously, one thing to, to plan and, and hope for that reality may be somewhere in between. I still find it difficult to imagine a full Six Nations competition with no spectators in any of the grounds, though. I think there will be an allocation in each of the stadiums up to a particular point. You obviously see down in England that they're bringing spectators, very limited spectators, back to stadiums. And obviously this is another step. I've heard the, certainly the football clubs down in the Premiership in England when they're talking about it in the media saying how thorough they're being. And I think that's something that Scotland would do if they were having a, an international game. They obviously were the same for the Edinburgh-Glasgow game that was held at Murrayfield. Personally, I wouldn't be rushing back, but I, I would hope that there would be at least 25,000 sensible people who would want to rush back. And hopefully that is the start of some sort of normality. But again, at this stage, it's just a prediction. And I think it's more a hopeful prediction from Scottish rugby that they can perhaps drum up some business again and welcome some people back, some paying spectators back into the National Stadium. Just to round off the tight five topics, we do take a look at the financial situation at Murrayfield. Of course, various projections about potential losses through the COVID period and how damaging this has been with the lack of revenue and having no spectators inside Murrayfield. They are having to tighten the purse strings and that's going to be the case for some time. It's going to take the, the game a little bit of time to recover financially from this. And, you know, the, the latest figures out saying that there, there could be losses of around 18 million are eye-watering, but equally understandable. Rugby is a game that, you know, a lot of people in Scotland love, a lot of people rely on. At the end of the day, when you get to the national level and the Glasgow-Edinburgh level, it's a job, it's a business. And like any business and any organisation, they're going to be making huge losses in this difficult time. And especially, you know, the more money that you earn and the higher employment rate you have, then the more likely are going to have big losses and 18 million is a huge, huge loss. But if we if we go back a few years to the, the debt that Scotland have been forecasting for the last decade or so, 
they've been slowly trying to eat away at it and try and be a little bit more self-sustained and they're doing a good job I think you know the, the occasion at Murrayfield's a big occasion it makes a lot of money you're well looked after there, it's a nice day out you now see some good rugby so I think off the back of it if you if you can start to get some spectators in the stadium as we just touched on there then obviously the money comes with that as well and you know hopefully you keep winning games you keep putting on good performances which means that players and the sponsors and the TV deals come in as well so hopefully after this there's certainly some remnants there for us to pick out with national rugby and we're certainly going towards being on more of an even footing and uh, they don't suffer too much and at the end of the day we don't want a lot of people losing their jobs and that's the main thing so hopefully they're doing it with the, the interests of their employees at heart No, absolutely and I, that figure incidentally is, is part of a piece on the Scottish Rugby website where Mark Dodson uh, was reflecting on the, the COVID situation and uh, particularly the absence of spectators could result in a loss of £18 million to the business by May 2021, making it imperative that Scottish Rugby continued to work in tandem with the government to secure the return of crowds as swiftly and safely as possible or receive some rescue package to offset the draining absence of turnstile income. There's more on the, the Scottish Rugby website and various other news outlets on that particular story, which is, is certainly going to have ramifications and a, a significant impact on the game going forward. That's the Type 5 topics for this week. The Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast. Well, I'm delighted to say that this week on the Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast, we've been joined by Colin Gregor. Nice to have you along, Colin. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, looking forward to having a good chat. Now, of course, we know you as a very experienced and now retired Scottish Sevens captain. You've also, on the back of that, had a, had a very good and a, a very experienced career as a 15s player with Glasgow Warriors. But at present, you've been concentrating in other areas of sport in, in your line of work. It's now sort of taking you partly away from rugby. Tell us a little bit more about that. My day job, as it were, is as head of operations with Basketball Scotland. Really interesting to be in a, a different sporting sphere within Scotland and, and you realise that there's a lot of sports that really look up to rugby and football in particular just because of the, the size and scale that these sports are on. And then, But, but the flip side of that and, and a real positive for being at well, a, a slightly smaller sport, shall we say, is actually you can have really meaningful impact and, and things happen a bit quicker. So if we want to make some changes, then, then we can kind of get buy-in from the community quite quickly and, and, and things can change. And obviously with the whole COVID situation, then we, we've had to adapt and be pretty flexible. March time, we were a couple of weeks away from the end of the season, so we had to finish the, the season early. And, and actually, the, the clubs were fully understanding of that. They realised that there were far more important matters than winning or, or losing a, a couple of basketball games. Coming in from a, like a rugby background, obviously you've got a lot of experience from your career. Going into a different sport, how's your reception been? Are you looked at as a rugby guy or are you looked at as an employee who's going to be looking for the, the best interests of basketball? I'm just looking at a, a, a small guy because there's all these tall, tall folk kicking about. <laughs> With down on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Say so that I thought I was small in rugby, so I'll go to a, a sport where I feel even smaller. But now, in, in fairness, within our Basketball Scotland office, there are a few basketball experts, as it were, but we've also got people from various sporting backgrounds. And it's it's really interesting just to see the kind of the different 
ideas and opinions people have from different sports. We appreciate you giving us a, an overview of where you are now in terms of your, your working life. But if we go back you know, some years now to yourself as an impressionable teenager, rugby was always a sport that was very much front and centre in, in your mind. I know you've an interest in, in football as well, but give us a an indication of, of some of the, the people around the rugby community that you were part of that were a, a big influence in you beginning to make your way in the professional game? My parents are ultimately the biggest and everyone always thinks, oh, it must be your dad. And dad did play rugby and I think he was keen that I played as well. But I've got a Welsh mother and so obviously everyone in Wales is, is rugby daft. So I think she was always the, the driving force. And But then dad realised that actually the best way to get me involved is for him to start coaching. So not only did he have to ferry me around everywhere, he actually gave up many a Sunday to coach my team as well. I was fortunate when I was at school. I, I went to school just outside Glasgow, a place called Balfron, sort of between Glasgow and Stirling, mainly a sort of footballing area. But at the time that I was at high school, there was a, a rugby player in the PE department and Stirling Council put a bit of a push on developing rugby as a sport as well. So yeah, whilst I, I played football, I played all sorts of other sports. There was a, a bit of a development of rugby. Just by chance, in my year and the year above me, there were some decent rugby players. So in our little region, we were quite good as a rugby team, obviously enjoyed it. The school then grew quite strong connections with Strathendrick Rugby Club, which again, at that time, there were just a number of good players there were a couple of really good coaches uh, Dave Barrett who had been playing at West of Scotland and I think Scotland B had gone back to, to Strathendrick where he'd grown up and he was kind of player coach the likes of Rory Kerr who was Glasgow Warriors and got a couple of Scotland caps was a couple of years above me so he'd been playing there it was about enjoying rugby, but we were successful as well and, and you wanted to continue that. I went through to uni in Edinburgh and the first year that I actually travelled back through to Strathendrick and that was when we got to the semi-finals of the Scottish Cup, which was the kind of classic fairy tale run. So again, it was good fun being involved in that. And you talk about Strathendrick, there were loads of really important people, but the, the link between the club and the school, a, a guy called Ian Bruce was just a kind of a volunteer, but just an absolute legend. Drove the minibus here, there and everywhere, collected us from different villages, took us to, there were a lot of games played in Grangemouth on a Wednesday evening in November, December, whenever it was, he'd quite happily just drive the bus. Volunteers that you don't often get the appreciation they deserve, I don't think. When I went to Edinburgh to uni, I fell in with a crowd. <laughs> like they were just some of my mates. Just they'd started playing at Watsonians, and coincidentally, Dad had been at Watsons as a he was an East Coaster originally. So after first year, I decided actually travelling back to Strathendrick. It was just a bit too much, so I joined Watsonians, where I then was coached by Gary Callender and Roger Baird. Again, by chance, I guess. Watsonians of the teams in Edinburgh, they had the biggest kind of push on sevens. And so when I was playing there, we had a, a couple of, of good players as well. So we'd go down on the on the border circuit at the end of the season and, and it was brilliant. It was just really, really enjoyed it. It was good fun. Always the atmosphere wherever the, the towns or villages you were playing in, all slightly different, but always really good. Didn't really enjoy it when a, a team from Edinburgh won the competition. So we, we didn't do that too often, but managed to win a few. Never at Melrose, unfortunately, which is always a, a bugbear. But yeah, and, and so yeah, the, the likes of David Harris was a, a big 
driver in the in the Watsonians sort of seven setup as well. Andrew Kerr was still there, who obviously a kind of Sivens legend within Scotland. And then the team we had, there was kind of Jamie Blackwood, who played a bit with Scotland Sevens. And then you had Darren Burns, who was the same. Andrew Turnbull. And then you had people like Gav Brown and Keith Waters, who just had like real quality rugby player. And just at that level, he just had a kind of, yeah, a bit of class about him that, again, you could learn from. And then opportunity kind of presented itself for me to move on with with Warriors and I had nothing else planned with my life uh, having done history at uni I was kind of like oh I'm not entirely sure where I'm going and so it was kind of almost fortune that that I got offered a, a deal or I got offered to, to train with Glasgow and then a contract off the back of that rather than following history into uh, being a, a museum curator or a librarian. Or Neil Oliver. <laughs> he could oh, have joined Neil yeah. Oliver on the big screen. <laughs> <laughs> Colin, you talked there about Roger Baird, Gary Callender, the influence they had on you as a youngster. Of course, b- both of them intrinsically linked with Kelso and the Kelso 7 success. Did you have in the back of your mind that there would be a perhaps a, an opening when you went into the professional game that would see you tear off to become a regular 7s player? Or was it simply a case of trying to establish yourself in the professional game first and foremost and just to take on whatever would come your way? Yeah, I think it was it was more that, just going in with, with eyes open. So when I first signed with Glasgow, it was on a, an apprentice deal. So it was kind of basically there was a, an acceptance. I would train with them when I could and I'd, I'd still train and play with Watsonians and if required with Glasgow, then I, I could play with them. At that point, because I'd, I'd started playing with Scotland Sevens as well, then it was kind of like, well, if you're not needed with Glasgow and Watsonians are happy for you to go and play Sevens, then then continue to do that as well. And yeah, so it, it just, it was kind of an organic way that certainly in, in my eyes, the way that it just developed into that. And then... When I signed full-time with Glasgow, there was still a kind of an awareness, I suppose, that I could go and play sevens if basically if I wasn't needed with Glasgow. And so I think throughout my, when was that, 2004, I think, 2000, that I signed with Warriors. And then 2011, I went full-time with the, the sevens. And I think there was only one season where I, I didn't play any sevens at all. So some of them were just the tournaments in the UK in kind of May-June time when the 15 season had finished. But then there was also things like the Commonwealth Games in 2006 in Melbourne, the Dubai Sevens World Cup in 2009. So yes, there were other times where I'd I'd kind of dip out of Glasgow and and go and kind of, I suppose, focus or or prioritise the Sevens. And when you did focus and prioritise the Sevens, you were joining the sport at a time when the World Series was becoming something quite significant. So you, you were beginning to notice, sort of looking from the outside in, that the World Sevens, there was some real momentum to it now. And the events that were held around the world were drawing substantial crowds. And you could tell that there was some real purpose behind these events that was going places. Yeah, there was a real momentum. And I think the, when was it, 98 was the first Commonwealth Games. And so you kind of, Sevens was becoming more and more popular, I guess, from then. And World Rugby recognised that and kind of committed a bit more towards the World Sevens series. I think HSBC came on as a big sponsor. And so again, it kind of got a bit of momentum. I don't know if they kind of formalised almost the, the agreement with Dubai and Hong Kong, which were the kind of two, I guess, sort of big events. 
And then obviously the Wellington Sevens in New Zealand became almost as big, if not, you know, the, the, the party that was had there was was unbelievable. The atmosphere again was was brilliant. So yeah, and whilst there were these kind of big tournaments, I think World Rugby or IRB, as they were known back then, saw Sevens as this way of growing the sport worldwide because it is a, a far simpler version of the game. It's, it's faster. It, there's more action, more things happen. It's easier for crowds to get engaged. It's easier for, for people to pick up and play if you've got a bit of kind of hand-eye coordination and you've got a bit of kind of athleticism to you. Uh, you can relatively easy get a, a seven or a ten that will be decent at that rather than worrying about the technicalities of scrum and mall and so yeah i think they saw it as an opportunity to grow the game and then obviously it became an olympic sport so there was further momentum off the back of that and and i think it was really interesting because i think it almost got to the stage where world rugby were like hang on do we split the two off and, and let sevens go and, and see where it goes and and see where 15s goes or do we try and keep the two together and then the kind of whole COVID situation sort of hit and, and everything's been put on hold. Obviously, you played during a time where there has been a big change in the way that people look at sevens. I think you've pretty much answered what I was going to ask, but the other thing that I was going to lead on from was where do you think sevens is in Scotland in terms of where do you think it sits with the rugby landscape? Is it an opportunity to feed into the national team or do they look at that as, do you feel in your opinion, they look at that as a completely different avenue? It's, it's a, a really interesting and a good question. I think now that Scottish rugby see the development opportunity that sevens can provide and so I mean it's it's almost gone full circle in, in the time when I started it was quite amateur then it was seen as well this can be a kind of development and then maybe we need to go full time sevens and try and sort of almost split it off and let it run its own course and then it's kind of like oh actually no I think it is probably in the kind of development sort of yeah as a development tool I suppose because towards the end of my playing career it seemed that Scottish rugby were quite happy to can their team on the World Series that they'd kind of given a crack and thought actually it's just an expense and it's not worth the money we spend on it ultimately it was a kind of a financial sort of look at it whereas I think there was a bit of an outcry within the Scottish rugby community of hang on Simmons historically there's, there's far more to it but also with only two professional teams, can we not look at Sivens being something of that third professional team as a way of trying to, to get players? Now, you can't have it as purely players just dipping in and out for the odd tournament or even for a year or two. You need to have a kind of core of Sevens players so that when players come into the team, they actually benefit from it because they're playing at a decent level. There's enough sevens now because the games are different now, how they're played, the fundamental skills are the same, but you need to have that tactical sort of awareness that a sevens expert or a core of sevens experts provide that then it means that when players are identified as this can be a real development opportunity for them, they're going to get the most from whether it's six months, a year, a couple of years of, of, of being in that sevens environment, whether it's going to... Dubai, going to Hong Kong, going around the world, how do you deal with that? The travel, how do you deal with suddenly actually you're playing in front of 40,000 people in a packed stadium? How do you deal with, well, actually you're playing at nine o'clock in the morning, so get up, get on with it, and then you're playing again at midday, and I don't care if you've got a dead leg from the first game, you've still got to get on and, and play. And So yeah, I think that Scottish rugby has now realised actually there's a lot that players can learn, players can benefit from being involved in the Sivens programme. In hindsight, should Scottish rugby have perhaps 
that's taken the, the tournament away from Murrayfield a little bit earlier than they did when they were part of the series of tournaments around the world because they've always found it difficult to get in excess of 20,000 inside Murrayfield despite the fact that Scotland, I remember, a, a fantastic match, a semi-final game in 2010 against South Africa. Scotland were producing some very good performances at that time, were exciting crowds. But it, it never quite attracted the, the volume of spectators that seemed to satisfy Scottish rugby at the time. And I guess that's the problem with having had it at 56, whatever, however many thousand seat stadium that Murrayfield is, that if you'd gone to yeah, somewhere slightly smaller, then it would have looked full. It would have, maybe the atmosphere would have been better. The whole kind of festival around it, you could have developed that. It, yeah, it is easy with hindsight. The, the idea of, of taking it down to Melrose was always really attractive. And, and certainly I think a lot of the teams coming over to Scotland, they would have enjoyed the experience of being down there. Now, logistically, actually, would that have worked in terms of the, the actual infrastructure of the green yards and, and everything yeah. that's required to hold a big sporting event? You then saw how successful the Commonwealth Games were at, at Glasgow, at Ibrox, in that big stadium again. So I think Scottish rugby just didn't really know how best to almost sell that that Simmons weekend. That when it was at towards the end of May in Edinburgh and you got nice weekends, it was really good. Then when it came through to Scotston, it was at the beginning of May and it never got a nice weekend where you're just going to get people, actually, yeah, we will go along because it's something to do for the weekend. We can sit out in the sun, we can have a couple of drinks, you get involved in the party atmosphere. So it never got that chance to kind of organically grow. And then off the back of Ibrox, when people are like, oh, actually... Maybe the weather's not all that important for this. This could be a really good weekend. Then it's taken away from Scotland. And so, yeah, you kind of lose that opportunity. So it's a real shame because one of the legacies of the the 2014 Commonwealth Games in Glasgow is Glasgow's ability to host major sporting events. And so you think, well, could the Simmons have fitted somewhere within that? But it didn't for whatever reasons. And and it it has gone now. So, yeah, you, you do feel that it's maybe a of an opportunity missed because it could have been a real revenue generator as well for Scottish rugby, I think. And a fantastic experience for you as a player to go around many parts of the world to experience different cultures around the world and see how other countries would organise and would set up a tournament because you played in a substantial number yourself and enjoyed a lot of success. That must have been when you were at your height as a sevens player and skippering the Scotland side. That must have been a fantastic experience for you. Yeah, and it's it's funny when, I guess at the time you probably don't appreciate it quite as much as when you then look back on it and the number of places that your opinion of them is very much determined by whether you had a successful tournament or not and so you you know you can you can be in Las Vegas and say oh Las- no, I don't like Las Vegas because <laughs> you, you lost a couple of games that you know you shouldn't have done or something like that and yeah when you kind of now take yourself or try and remove yourself from it a bit and yeah, it's 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 an incredible way to spend a number of years just going around the world with with a group of ultimately a group of your mates playing the sport that you love playing it in front of however many thousand people and most importantly you're doing it for your country you, you get to pull on the the Scotland jersey and at the time you maybe don't appreciate that there's not many people in in whatever sport that actually get to represent their country and. Again, it's coming back and it's speaking to, to friends and family who maybe at the time 
they, they didn't say it, but when you then retire and they're saying, oh, you know, I used to love getting up at whatever time in, in the morning to watch you on the TV and just the sense of pride that that gave people that, that I know that you never really kind of appreciate. And I think that's one of the things that looking back now, it's like, well, yeah, I got to do the, the good stuff and go around the world. But yeah, the, the kind of impact it had on people as well. I think it's, uh, it's nice to, to know that. Before, obviously, we spoke about the sevens in terms of the platform it was in. Now, you've achieved a lot, a lot of success in sevens. Obviously, when you were a professional with Glasgow, do you look at the 15s as being a platform to go in and do better things with sevens? Or do you feel there's some opportunities missed with 15s? Do you feel like you've obviously, again, the two sports are almost separate? How do you look at the, the kind of 15 side of your career? When I decided in 2011 to go full-time with the sevens, that was off the back of me saying, right, I've gone as far as I'm going to go in 15s now. One thing when I look back now that I, I don't know what the right, it doesn't frustrate. It would have been nice if I'd been at Glasgow when Gregor Townsend came in, I think. I just think the way that he coached the game, the impact he had on Warriors and their kind of playing style, I think it would have suited how I like to play the game. The fact that I had the, the opportunity to continue to to play for Scotland through the sevens, the, the experiences that, that it provided, then it's yeah, it's kind of it's one of those things, yeah, that I think I think for a, a few years I would have quite happily focused on fifteens and, and tried to go and, and see where that took. But then as I kind of realised that I'd kind of peaked as it were in, in a fifteens context, then it was like actually with this sevens now getting a full time squad set up, then it, there's potential for that to be a, a real opportunity and, and let's see where that can take us. The, the international sevens model, the way it's designed, you have sort of almost consolation tournaments that fall out with the, the pools. You play your pool matches and then you move on from there. If you win your pool, you stay in the cup competition. If not, you then go into one of the other sort of feeder competitions thereafter. So that that was important as well because it wasn't simply a case of going around the world playing, say, two, three matches, and that was it. The fact that, and this, I suppose, was important for spectators as much for the players, was that you were guaranteed that you were going to get a full weekend of games and there was various prizes to be one at the end of it. And, you know, that, that would build confidence as well. Yeah, and it's interesting because if you won the bowl, which you basically finished ninth place, then the crowd would, like, they'd love it because you'd win a final. So what, it'd be the, the third last game or the second last game at the end of the tournament, just before the, whether the third, fourth playoff and then the final, or sometimes it was just the final. And so everything was building towards this crescendo. But as a player you would far rather have been beaten in a quarterfinal or beaten in a semi-final of the cup because you would have actually got further. So, yeah, but I guess you, you then you take the positives from it and say, well, actually, we've played six games rather than just playing three games and, and not getting anything from it. And the other thing, when you talk about the development opportunity that, that Sevens provides, it's that mental battle of how do you get yourself up for the first game on a Sunday or, or on the second day when you've not made it into the cup, when your expectation is, right, we're going to be a top eight team, so we need to win two of our pool games. And for whatever reason, that doesn't happen on on the Saturday and then you have to get up on the Sunday. You have to get up earlier because the bowl competition starts before the cup. You have to play in pretty much an empty stadium because whilst everyone's keen for the latter stages of the competition, 
they're still a bit dusty from the, the, the night before and so they don't rush to get there for the, the bowl quarter final. So just in terms of developing players, it's how do they have that kind of resilience? How do they have that mental strength to say, well, OK, I need to perform at my best with no one in this stadium when I'm playing against a minnow of world rugby that I know we should beat, but if we don't perform, then 15 minutes is, is over like that. If momentum goes against you, then you can quite easily become unstuck. So yeah, it's interesting, that whole mental battle as well. You were the captain of your country at Sevens. You were obviously, people looked up to you because you must have had the good ability to be able to switch on and switch off. So the easy question is, who else was like that in the squad? But then who was bad? There must be somebody who was a, a bit of a, an enigma and, and kind of just wasn't able to flip the switch as easy. I think everyone got better. I think it was a case that people, when they first came into sevens, or, or even if they'd, if they'd played a bit of sevens and then they'd been away with 15s or something or away injured and then they came back, it took a while to get back into that kind of mindset. So, And I think there were times where everyone would be on a bit of a downer and it would be up to someone else to kind of energise. And, and that's the... That's always, I think, the, the kind of the beauty and the advantage of team sport. That if on a Sunday, like if, if I've missed the the last kick on the Saturday night, that would have won the game, that would have got us into the cup, and you know I'm still a little bit down on it on this Sunday morning. Then there's other people that can generate a bit of energy and try and get a bit of a buzz going, and that'll get me going. It's not all on one person, which I find the the, the challenge of kind of individual sport. So yeah. I, I think it's, it's difficult to kind of name names as, oh, they, they were always terrible or they were always a real kind of energiser. But I think people got better at it the more they were in that situation, I suppose. Very diplomatic. Well, you avoided that. <laughs> Just de- desperately trying to think. Who, who could I, <laughs> I know. Who could I throw under the bus here? <laughs> one thing I would say about, about the sport is, and I was thinking about this when you were answering one of the, the earlier questions we asked you, is if you're an athlete and you go to the Olympics as, a say, a 100-metre runner and you're in the first heat and you finish fifth, that may well be your Olympics or your Commonwealth Games over, unless you're a relay runner or taking part in the long jump or that, you know, you may be doubling up in two or three different disciplines. So you touched on it there, the fact you could build up momentum and it would also help you with the, the defeats and the victories. You'd work with people in the early days of your sevens career, with people like Peter Gallagher, who I think your father would know, actually, again, yeah. because Peter's Watsonian's connection. How big an influence were some of those people then on even when you were at your peak and they had maybe retired? You know, were you still looking back at some of their words of wisdom and taking them into the bigger arena? So it was Pete Gallagher, Roy Laidlaw, Rob Moffat were the, the kind of the main coaches management within the the Sevens when I started and the standards that they set, the kind of the expectations both on the field and off the field. It was amateur back then, but they had a really professional mindset and they had some senior players. So Mark Lee, Clark Laidlaw, Davy Gray, these kind of core guys that, that bought into it as well. That actually, it was more about, well, you're in a really privileged position to be representing your country. So let's make sure that we do what we can to make the most of that rather than to kind of just think, oh, we're off to Hong Kong, let's go for a jolly. But the, the flip side of that was, you are going to Hong Kong, so let's enjoy it. And I think it was something that was was really important about when you're switched on, you're really switched on. But when you're switched off, then actually go and relax and enjoy yourself. Now, don't do anything that's going to compromise performance, but, you know, have a, have a good laugh. Go and see a few sights. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy the experience. Soak in a bit of the culture sort of thing. 
And I think for you to be able to switch on when it comes to training or it comes to games, you have to be able to switch off. I think when I was sort of 2011-ish, I probably forgot about that when I was into that role as captain and there were a lot of young guys in this squad. And so I thought, oh, hang on, we need to really drive stamina. We need to make sure things are, are right on point and we're serious the whole time. And so you're kind of thinking about that and actually it doesn't work because you're kind of constantly on, but you're never fully on and you never fully switch off. And so you, you then look back at actually the way that the early kind of coaches and, and senior players had it was, was spot on about enjoy yourselves and have a good crack. But when, when we need to switch on, then let's make sure we, we're properly on and, and we get the most out of each of the training sessions and, and the games and tournaments. And you look back at times when you would perhaps meet well-known personalities who'd be attending one of the, the Sevens tournaments. I can think back to a story I'll get you to, to try and relay it that Pete Gallagher told me about the Scotland Seven squad in Melbourne in 2006. And it was almost a an impromptu meet-up with a member of the, the royal family as you were heading to a function. I think this, this member was also going to attend. Yeah, yeah. And Pete was a, a, a great, like just a, a, a real legend, I think. And uh, But I guess out of his comfort zone, he, he might, might get a little bit flustered. So when he's then, as team manager, OK, we'll introduce the, the team and uh, has one of his, his flustered moments where... He can remember everyone's nicknames. And so rather than saying, oh, this is Colin Gregor, I'd get introduced to royalty as, as Budgie, which for some reason is my nickname. So yeah, and so on down the, the entire team. So it was, uh, I think, I'm sure that Prince Edward, I'm sure he found it quite amusing to find, oh, well, it's <laughs> not happened to me before. <laughs> it was a, a, a nice sort of impersonal introduction. Well, exactly, yeah, yeah. And, and then in... Glasgow it was uh, Princess Anne was coming to see us and it was I think it was after one of the games so it was when we were in the changing room so we were then under strict orders yes you're getting changed but actually you're not getting changed until the royalty has been in so that she doesn't see anything that she doesn't need to see sort of thing so <laughs> where's Budgie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I do want to ask you about you know any, any standout moments on a sevens field when you were taking part uh, particularly in, in a Scotland jersey because you know, you were a central figure at a time when the game at international level was growing, and I think that's always going to be very much part of your own history. But if I was to ask you for maybe one or two performances or one or two particular moments that, that stand out and you look back and say, that's going to take a bit of beating, you know, in, t- in terms of a career high, what, where would they be or what would that look like? There's a, there's a couple that immediately jump out. The Commonwealth Games in, in Glasgow in 2014 where we just lost to New Zealand in the first game, which, yeah, could have, would have, should have, one of those. Then we we beat the Bahamas in the, I think it was the Bahamas in the next game. And we had Canada in the final game of, of day one to get through to the, the cup quarterfinals. So obviously any chance of getting a medal, you need to get into the top eight. And 2006 was my previous Commonwealth Games experience and, and we'd lost to Canada in a similar game and so we'd, we'd ended up in the, in the bottom half of the drawer or out of the kind of the medal race. The atmosphere running out onto the pitch for that game, the part in particular was, uh, I think it was Richie Vernon scored a try just before half time, and so we come into the, the huddle at half time and the Proclaimers is playing on the, the Tannoy system and basically everyone is singing along Stevie Gemmell the, the coach comes in and so we're, we're in our huddle you've only got a minute or whatever it is at, at half time and he starts speaking 
And if I was speaking to young kids, I, I would say always listen to your coach. But at that point, I was just like, I just had to remove myself from it and just kind of almost take a step back and just look around and just listen and just soak up that because it, it really was incredible that that kind of, yeah, just a, a really special sort of moment. And I think you mentioned, Stuart, when, when we'd been at Murrayfield and we, we beat South Africa, I think in, in the quarterfinal a few years previously, just again, it was one of those just everything seemed to go right for us as a team. The atmosphere again, Murrayfield wasn't packed, but there was a there was a decent number of folk in, and just I think that the way we played that game, it, it was really, really we just played really well and, and thoroughly deserved our, our victory. So again, that was good. This times in in Dubai, when it gets to nighttime in Dubai, the the atmosphere I think it intensifies when when it gets dark, when everyone's had a, a few more drinks, the, the stadium's absolutely full. Again, it's a, a special place to play rugby. I think it was, it was my first Hong Kong, my first tournament. We won the bowl. Now again, looking back, winning the bowl, finishing ninth isn't great, but for that Scotland team, actually, that was an achievement. And getting to the, the latter stages of the competition, playing in front of 40, 45,000 people when they've all had a few drinks, so they're, they're fully engaged and, and making, making loads of noise was pretty special as well. So in terms of on field from a, a Simmons point of view, I guess they're the the main ones. One other one which I, I should touch on that before I went through to, to Edinburgh, I played a bit of mini rugby at GHK who became Glasgow Hawks. And we went down to the Kelso Sevens and I remember scoring a try. I think I was sort of 16 or 17 at the time. Scoring a try down at Kelso against Kelso and the whole place going silent. <laughs> and I was like, oh. <laughs> Talk about a lot of atmosphere, actually. Silent. That's quite good as well. <laughs> There's only one thing that um, border teams hate more than an Edinburgh team coming down and winning their Sevens and that's a Glasgow team coming down and winning their Sevens. <laughs> I think that was in the however many five or six tournaments we played. I think that was the, the, the one try that was scored anyway. So <laughs> the, it was quite nice. Just oh, silence. Mm. So for that for that moment at least, Colin, silence was golden. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, I can imagine that, that there's nothing quite like playing in front of a a raucous home crowd as well. But I think that the Scotland name, the Scotland, if you like, brand, the reputation the country has around the world. I think that that's going to benefit teams like the, the Scotland Sevens when you're playing around the world because I, I think a, a lot of people tend to look upon the country favourably and when you're competing, you know, that that's going to be beneficial. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of where the Sevens goes that there are large expat communities which helps as well. But yeah, I think, I think Scotland has a, a really positive reputation around the world and so yeah quite often we're the uh, fans or second team or, or whatever it might be like that um, although Kenya have become more and more that when you're on the World Series the other thing like when you go to places like South Africa or New Zealand you realise that actually the, the rugby crowds are quite knowledgeable and so if you're playing well or, or if you beat a team then they're, they're going to applaud you because actually you deserve it sort of thing as well so that's almost I guess getting applauded in, in those sort of environments is, is almost worth more but the opposite to Kelso <laughs> no, no comment <laughs> yeah they, they appreciate the ability well Colin I mean it's difficult to know what the, the future holds for, for the game of sevens we will just wait and, and see how in a post-Covid world how things settle down and move forward but you've certainly played the game at a very high level representing Scotland at, at, at a time where there was real momentum and it's been really interesting listening to some of your stories about how you got started in the sport the decisions you had to make in terms of 
of the, the path you would take and some of the, the success that you've enjoyed. So thank you very much for joining us today. No, thank you very much for having me. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. The Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast. Colin Gregor there, talking to us, reflecting on his 15s and especially his 7s career. And thinking back, we, we touched in the Type 5 topics, Dale, about the performance of Lee Jones down in Cardiff. And Colin Gregor talked at length there about the atmosphere at Ibrox in 2014 and the 7s the that he was very much part of as a, a Scotland player. Lee Jones was the best of the bunch, arguably, in, in that tournament. He had a, a wonderful tournament there. So another example of a, a player that, that has been able to play well both at, at 15s and 7s as well. Lee Jones was one of the standout players. I, unfortunately, I got tickets for that, but I just had my ACL reconstructed, so I wasn't actually able to make it and I was gutted because I was really looking forward to, to seeing what the occasion was like but they obviously showed up well in the Commonwealth Games and it's interesting to look at Colin Gregor's points and to think about what they could have done with Sevens but it's like it's almost an opportunity missed but yeah Lee Jones was great and you think he's, he's similar to like say Darcy Graham now they're both short in stature but explosive very strong for their size and that's the argument with the, is it a development tool the Sevens or is it something that it stands alone and for both of them it's probably worked as a development tool but for Colin Gregor especially it probably just worked as a standalone so it's not always one size fits all Yeah of course the, the Pro 14 continues this weekend as does the Autumn Nations Cup with Scotland playing Ireland second playing second and the two pools as the competition draws to a close Scotland over in Dublin Can you imagine that this is an opportunity for Gregor Townsend to just look at that pool of players one last time select an interesting mix of players throughout the 23 and perhaps give Jakob van der Waal the the chance to to make his debut and and bring one or two fringe players in that perhaps are are hungry and felt they deserved a a bit more international rugby during this window. I think it's funny whenever we talk about Scotland now we can't really say Scotland without saying the word opportunity and it's uh, it's the different opportunities that Scotland can bring about now. I think that's an interesting outlook that that you have the fact that you could potentially rejig the squad and try and new combinations for me personally I would go all guns blazing go out with your fullest, your, your strongest squad and really try and take Ireland on and, and put down a marker I don't think they've been playing particularly well I think there's been a lot of rumblings about if Farrell's the right guy for the job for Ireland and I think this is an opportunity to go for Ireland in their own backyard we've been playing well away from home probably had a little blip against France in terms of the, the tidiness of the game but those games come about all the time Like we played England and it was an absolute downpour the game was horrible to watch but off the back of that they they were then able to then push on a little bit more so I think this is potentially a chance for us to have a crack at Ireland in their own backyard go strong Van de Waal put them on the bench and bring them on and, and get them capped is that the way that we want to go for it I'd go all guns blazing and full squad and I think that providing it's dry conditions it could be a really really interesting game and it could, hopefully could be one of the best ones that the Autumn Nations Cup has seen this season because to be fair they've all been quite disappointing slightly I think some of them have had waves and fits but overall they've been quite pedestrian yeah, it hasn't quite reached the heights and, and who'd have thought that 2020 we would bookend this most peculiar year with a visit in the early part of February to Dublin and then we close with our final international game of the year also in Dublin against Ireland it's not what we expected at the turn of the year 
We're into December now and the international programme for the year draws to a close. But we'll have further podcasts in the coming weeks. An impressive guest list, if I do say so myself. Looking forward to further conversations. As always, Dale, it's been great to see you and to have a chat with you about uh, various aspects of the sport. Likewise, it's always good. It's a nice little addition to the week to be able to chew the fat with you and, and speak about what's been happening in terms of Scottish rugby. So, same time next week, I think. Catch you then. Oh, he's been tackled just shot of the line. The Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast with Stuart McFarlane and Dale Clancy. That's extraordinary.